This morning, as you're taking out your Bibles and you're opening them up to Daniel 7, I just wanted to take a few moments to say thank you for those of you who have reached out to me personally, given me phone calls, text messages, or Facebook that you are praying with me and for my family. Uh, as you can imagine, some of my family are devastated that a six or 26-year-old young man has passed away and, and gone from this earth much too soon. And, you know, it's just that reminder, right, that, that death, death is real, death is, is present, but the grief that we experience at death, you know what it tells to us? You know what it screams out in our very hearts and souls? This is not the way it's supposed to be. So when someone tells you, hey, death is just a natural part of life, know in your heart and soul that it's not. Death isn't natural. It's the most unnatural thing you and I experience. Because death was imposed, you see, after God created and called it good. Death was imposed as a result of sin. Death was imposed to take a creature that God made unified, body and spirit, and to pull it apart until such a day that a new holy and good body could be given back to that spirit. So why do we lament at death and grieve? Because every fiber in us says, it's not supposed to be this way. But here's the hope. Jesus says, I come to make all things new. And so thank you for your prayers. Let me ask you to continue to pray. My Brent's father is devastated. He's devastated. And so your prayers mean the world to me. So it, whether you let me know you're praying or not, I don't care. If you let me know, that's wonderful. I love to know that you're praying, but thank you for those who have prayed. On that note, we come to Daniel 7 this morning, a very important part, and what a, what a beautiful part of Daniel 7 we're at in terms of the middle part of this chapter. Last week, we began the prophetic side of the prophetic book of Daniel. We began looking at the beasts and, and what they mean and what they imply and the fourth beast and the little horn and all these things. Now remember, I'm going to say this repeatedly throughout the book of Daniel because it, it, we need to remember this. We cannot think of Daniel in linear terms. So don't think of Daniel as a historical timeline of how we ferret out history. Is history predicted in Daniel? Yes, it's inevitable. It, it is. We, we look at it and we can see how human history worked out. But Daniel being a very, very close cousin to the book of Revelation, is also giving us a covenantal story of how God works in human history. And so it is moving in a direction, but let us remember that God's works are cyclical. And when you look at Revelation and you think of the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, what are you, what are you looking at? You're looking at cycles of judgment and human history of how God is bringing his kingdom to bear. What is Daniel telling us? You're looking, at, you're looking at cycles of history and human history as God is bringing his kingdom to bear. So when we think about this, what is Daniel 7 is really foundational to the rest of this prophetic literature. It's foundational to it because Daniel 7 is giving us all the, the building blocks we need to begin to then hone in on more specific visions that Daniel will have later on in this book. And so when we think about really getting it, Daniel 7 is one of those chapters that we really need to get because it is foundational. It is giving us a framework to understand the rest of the book. What is the framework? Human kingdoms are going to rise. They're going to be terrible. They're going to be awful. They're going to fight against the kingdom of God there is the Ancient of Days. There is the Ancient of Days. And what is our answer to the plight we experience? The Ancient of Days. And beloved of God, it's not trite. Don't just hear me saying, 
well, when someone goes, probably you just come and say the name Jesus and everything goes away. That's not true. That's not true. And if somebody tells you that, they're, they're, they're false. It's not that Jesus makes all the pain go away. It's that Jesus says, when you're in the pain, I am with you. When you are in the fire, I am with you. When you are between hammer and anvil, I am with you. And just remember, whatever they do to your body, I've got your soul. And whatever they threaten you with, I am eternal. They are temporal. When we really believe that, when we really believe that, truly believe that, dear friends, we become liberated, liberated to stand. I'm not going to recount all of human history But what do you think gave the Reformers such courage to stand the way that they did, ready to face death when the Reformation was happening? It was the liberty that they found in the truth of God's Word that emboldened them to stand for truth with a heart for God and say, do what you will, but this is what's true and right and good. Were they perfect? No, of course not. Nobody is. But that's what happens when Chapters like Daniel 7 come alive to us when we look at this middle part. Without further delay, though, let us turn our attention to this good word as we are in a time where we desperately need hope. And beloved of God, it is herein, it is herein, right here, the hope that we need is right before us. So this morning we're looking at Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the, little, that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire." As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and its power. It comes at just the right time. It comes at just the time as Daniel is painting a bleak picture and we find in the midst of the wilderness, God, there is an oasis of truth and it is your word. We come now to drink deeply and I pray that you would use it to transform us. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. The governor of Massachusetts, Christian Herter, from about 1953 to 1957, was out stumping all day trying to win a re-election, which he ultimately did not win. He'd been out all day going to different places, stumping, trying to grease the palms of everybody he could to try to get all the votes he could muster, and within that entire day, he never took time to eat. So... As he was driving along out in the country somewhere, he came across a church having a picnic and thought, I'll stop there and, and eat with these good folks and have some, have some food and, and nourish myself. So he did. He stops, he picks up a plate, grabs, jumps in line, and he goes to the serving lady who was serving the fried chicken, and she puts a piece on this plate, and he says, I'm, I'm really hungry. Can I have two? And she said, no, no, you get one piece, one piece. 
And so he sat there and haggled with her, just explaining he'd been busy, too busy to eat, in fact. But now that he was, the food was before him, he really needed two pieces to get his fill. And she said, no, you get one. He was trying to remain humble, but finally he did the name drop. And he finally said, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of Massachusetts. And she looked at him and said, and I'm the supervisor of this line, and you get one piece. Move along. <laughs> a funny story, but what does it tell us? There's always a higher authority. <laughs> There's always somebody with more authority than you, no matter how important you think you are. There is always going to be a higher authority. Well, in, in the middle of the violence, in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of these beasts that we saw, these these uh, magical, wonderful, awful beasts that we were confronted with last week, Daniel reminds us that there is always a higher authority. And that's exactly what this little paragraph exists to remind us of, is that there's always a higher authority. There's always some, a higher authority that we can find hope and help in. Powerful nations rise, they fall, but there is a kingdom that rules over all of them. Over all of them. Beloved, just let history be your tutor for just a moment. Think about how great Babylon must have seen. Oh, well, let's go back further than that. Think about how great Assyria must have seen, and then how great Babylon must have seen, and then how great Persia must have seen, and then how great Greece must have seen, and then Rome, and then the expansion of Rome in the East and West, and the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire, all these things. Think about how great and awesome and terrible and un, unbeatable they all must have seen. And where are they now? What is their legacy? Every single one of them defeated. And yet, the kingdom of God is alive and well and moving forward in all of the continents where those empires reigned. The kingdom of God is alive and well and moving forward in America despite what we see among us. Because the kingdom of God is eternal, it's higher, it rules. If we think about verses 9 to 14, they really kind of function kind of like a parenthetical statement. And what I mean by that is, is Daniel stops in the middle of what he's telling us to say, oh, by the way, let me give you this little piece of information that's vital to the rest of this. This is an important part, so I want you to stop and read this so you understand that there's a little bit of context here. He's saying, Daniel's saying to us, things look terrible, I know. But remember the truth of who reigns and who's in authority. Things look terrible, but remember who reigns and who's in authority. I love people in hard times, what, are, what do they need? Well, obviously we want to say, well, they need rescue. I mean, the Afghani people need rescue. They really do. They need to be rescued. But you know what else we need on a deeper, more spiritual level? We need hope. We will quickly despair and give up if we are hopeless. I've told you this before, but it bears repeating. Do you know in survival situations, the number one reason that people die is not exposure, it is not starvation, it's not even of thirst, it's despair. When those people or that person gives up hope, they die. So people in hard times, we need hope. And that's exactly what Daniel is giving us here. He's rerouting us in what is hopeful in the midst of hard truths. Daniel is not trying to say, hey, just come to Yahweh and you'll have a utopia. You'll have a perfect life. Your life won't hurt anymore because none of it will matter. He's not saying that at all. He's saying there is hope in the salvation of the Lord. He's saying there's victory in the Lord. 
He's saying that we have life renewed in the Lord. So basically, what is Daniel interjecting here in chapter 7? He's saying, remember who sits on the throne. Remember who sits on the throne. Not on the thrones of men, but remember who sits on the capital T throne. Remember who has authority over all things and advances human history. And he's not encouraging some sort of transcendental detachment. You know, this is not Star Wars. He's not saying, you know, let everything go and be one with yourself. He's saying, embrace the one who rules everything. Embrace the real king. Embrace the true throne. Embrace the real truth. And yes, it may cost you your life. But God will not let you be destroyed ultimately. He preserves you unto eternity. You see, Daniel is calling us to embrace truth at a much deeper level not to merely know it cognitively here, academically, but to embrace it, to really live like it's true. He's calling us to really live like it's true. He's saying our lives, all we are is the Lord's. And when the Lord has us, beloved of God, let me tell you, what the Lord owns cannot be snatched away. What is Yahweh's could never be snatched away, stolen or lost. It remains forever. And so what is Daniel doing? He's writing to liberate us from the fear of despair because the life of Yahweh is in his people. If you're in, Yahweh, if you're in the Lord this morning, if you're in Christ this morning, then Christ's life is in you, and that cannot be taken away. And you can't gamble it away. So with those thoughts in mind this morning, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that authority and salvation are firmly rooted in God. That authority and salvation are firmly rooted in God. When it comes to authority... You know, when we're in conversations, and perhaps you've been in conversations lately and you've had a differing opinion than someone else. The person you're talking to, y'all don't share the same opinion. Typically, and it's almost instinctively, what will we often do? We'll often appeal to some book or article we read or some sermon we've heard or some talk we've heard given as evidence for why our position is correct. Why? We're appealing to an authority. We're recognizing that I'm not the final authority in this conversation. I'm going to appeal to an authority to make my point. And we don't always bring us into agreement, but we understand that why do I think this way? Well, because I think it's true. Why do I think it's true? Because there is an authority behind this truth that gives me confidence that what I think is true. Right? You with me so far? I'm not trying to confuse you. Let me put it to you like this. Why did Satan in the Garden of Eden tell Eve, did God really say? He was doing two things. He wasn't just undermining God's authority, which he was doing. He was also undermining the truth. Well, did God really say that? Well, well, he's lying to you because he knows in the days you eat it, you're going to become like him. He was very cunning. He understood if I can attack authority, I can attack truth. And if I can attack truth, I can attack authority. And he was successful, wasn't he? He did it. He, he, he sucked her in. And we could also argue that maybe the, the larger share of blame there is Adam's for not instructing her in the way that God had instructed him, but that's a different sermon. But what we understand is that truth and authority are inseparable. Truth and authority are inseparable. That's why Satan challenged it. That is why the world comes to attack the truth of Christianity. Why? Because if it's not true, it has no authority. And if it has no authority, then we don't have to hold it as true. 
You see, it works. Those are symbiotic relationships. So in the face of what we're looking at, in the middle of Daniel, we have this beacon of hope in a, in a and just a kind of a sea of, oh, this is awful, we have this one spotlight, this one lighthouse of hope that says, hey, come and rest and know the truth. And, and so in the face of all the tumult and depravity that Daniel paints and that we experienced, what Daniel is saying is God rules, God reigns, God redeems. Three R's that we need to keep straight in our minds, that Brad needs to keep straight in his mind so often, that God rules, God reigns, God redeems. And neither, any of those three, none of those three are negotiable. He is ruler. He is reigning. He is redeemer to those who are his. And so when we come to this, one of the things that I think, first we're getting a look at the throne, right? We're getting a clear picture of the throne here in verse 9. But one of the things that should hit us almost immediately is the abrupt switch that happens. Daniel was talking about the beast. He's talking about the little horns. What literarily we would expect is for Daniel to continue on that vision, but he doesn't. As I told you earlier, he kind of gives this little interjected statement of truth to help us. It's kind of like he's giving us a little snack on a journey so that we don't starve from despair. He's giving us a little snack of hope saying, here, you're going to need this because it's about to get intense here. And so that's what he does. But we'd expect to hear more about the beast, the fourth beast, or the little horn, and we don't. Instead, we're confronted with who God is. We're confronted with God's majesty. We're confronted with God's glory. So who is the star of the show? Not the beast, not the little horn, not the nations. Yahweh is. Yahweh, the Lord, is the star here. It's interesting, as he, he lays it out, he says, as I look, thrones, that is plural, were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I'm going to stop right there. We're getting a picture of the heavenly throne room or the heavenly court, the place of judgment, and that's not the first time we hear of plural thrones. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, John the Revelator says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So not only are you getting thrones in the throne room of God, you're getting elders and, and people on those thrones who are described roughly in the same manner as God is, with that whole purity and golden crown type thing. They're reflections of their Lord. So is Dan, what Daniel is looking at is the heavenly court, the place where God sits and dwells and rules and reigns and all of creation is before him. But he calls him the ancient of days. The ancient of days took his seat. What a descriptor, unique to Daniel. In fact, it's only used one other place in the Old Testament, and then it's even roughly the same when Micah 5.2 says that from Bethlehem and Judah the Messiah will come. He says, from ancient of days. How interesting is it that Micah ties a similar phrase to Daniel's usage here of the ancient of days when we're getting some sort of unity between the Father and the Son. We're getting a little glimpse into the Old Testament of how the Trinity works, that the Father or that the Son is the express image of the Father. More on that here in just a moment. Daniel calls him the Ancient of Days. Why? Well, he's establishing something about this creature, this being. He's not a creature. He's a being. He is the creator. He is the elder one. He is the one who is the eternal one. The Ancient of Days is a way of saying 
We don't know when his days began, if they ever began, because he is so elder, he is so eternal, he is the one before all things, he is the creator of all things. In fact, he's completely unique. There is no other being on the, in the universe, in all of creation, that is like him, save one who we'll meet here in just a minute. But Daniel is holding out his uniqueness. It's as if he's held out these beasts and we marvel at what they look like, but he says, yeah, there's even one greater than them, the Ancient of Days. And then he goes on to describe his clothing. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning flames. When we look at his white clothes, beloved, yeah, it's not a stretch to understand what is he getting at, the purity, the righteousness of this being who sits on the throne, We're looking at pure white clothes. They're not stained. There is no stain on them. There is no imperfection in them. He's perfect. And he's perfectly qualified to do what he's doing, which is sit on the throne in judgment. That's the whole point. His hair, pure wool. In other words, richly white, dazzling white. What is it telling us? The perfect picture of symbol because ancient Israelites respected white and gray hair, because with it they saw experience, they saw gained wisdom, they saw someone who had lived their lives. And what Daniel is talking about, not just someone who is moderately wise, but who is perfectly wise, who's discerning, who had insight. Incidentally, I'm not going to turn there right now for wanting to save time for the present text, but if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, And you read how John the Revelator describes the resurrected, glorious Christ, you will find a lot of similarity to this description in Daniel. Why? Because the Son is the expressed image of the Father, because of the uh, Trinitarian unity that the Son and the Father share, because of God's purposes throughout history. When we look at his throne, it's very peculiar the way it's described with Wheels were burning fire. It was on fire. I mean, basically what, what Daniel is telling you is his throne was on fire. It was on fire. There was a fire coming out of it. The wheels were on fire. The whole thing was on fire. What we've got to picture here is don't picture a big gilded seat, okay? Don't picture that, in, uh, you know, erupting in flame. Think more of a chariot-type apparatus that is now with wheels of flaming fire that are spinning and you have this creature, this being, seated. He's not a creature, so I'm going to try to stop saying that. He is the creator. He is the the being. You have this being, the being, sitting in this chariot-style throne about to give judgment. So what you have here, what Daniel is trying to paint for us, is you have the divine warrior about to give divine judgment. That's what he's doing for us. He's, He's making sure we understand this is not Santa Claus sitting on a chair in the North Pole saying, (laughs) this is a being that nobody who is unworthy wants to stand in front of. Nobody. Because he is a flame of fire in their midst. Why use fire? Well, fire in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's purifying judgment. Often used. Remember, let's just think of some examples. When the children of Israel exited Egypt... A pillar of fire went before them. God symbolizes fire. Why? Well, to lead by light and to burn up enemies who would come after them. It's all right. 
When we think of Elijah and he challenges the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel, what is the final symbol that shows the authenticity and supremacy of God? It is fire. And what does that fire do? It comes and it licks up all the sacrifice and all the water and all the whole altar. Why? Because, like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, our God is a consuming fire. That's what he is. And and that's how he brings judgment to pass. And so when the Old Testament is trying to make judgment come alive to us, what's the best thing? Fire. Fire. Because it so utterly and completely destroys. Fire is merciless. Why do you think Nebuchadnezzar was going to have those three boys thrown to a fire? Because it would burn them to nothing. There would be no testimony left of them. They would be totally obliterated. And that's what we see in the Old Testament with regards to fire. I love how verse 10 in the ESV actually keeps it pretty wooden and literal. It doesn't try to clean up that a thousand, a thousand, that a thousand, thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's a word for word in the Aramaic, almost. A thousand, what is it trying to tell you? Well, if you're going to try to say something in the ancient world, of course, now we would say it's like a bazillion or something like that. Or if we use the word trillion, I mean, you know, when we use the word trillion, we understand it's just, that number is, is ridiculous. That's what Daniel is trying to say. A thousand, a thousand, 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, a number so large, so ridiculous, you can't even get your mind around it. That's how many servants this one has around his throne. Now, if you think about a kingly court in, say, Babylon, I mean, really big kings might have a court of uh, 200 people, 500 people. I mean, hey, I keep, I keep 500 people at court. That's saying something. Daniel is like, he has thousands of thousands and, and 10,000 times 10,000. We're not supposed to take these numbers literally, I don't think. We're supposed to just recognize he's got a lot. He's got a lot. He's got a lot of servants. Why would he do this? To reflect the glory of the one seated. To reflect the glory of the one seated. But what are these myriads of people doing? What are they doing? Well, it says here, that they served him. What's interesting about this word in the Aramaic and the Hebrew, by the way, serve, worship, minister, it's all the same word. What are they doing? As they minister before this chariot throne, they are worshiping. They're not fawning. They're not waiting for their handout at king's table. They are actively engaged in worship as the one seated on that throne is about to deliver a righteous word to the earth. Gives me chill bumps. They worship because they recognize that the warfare that is happening in the spiritual realm is divine, and it's Yahweh's way of, of, of redeeming his people. So when we look at this, we're looking at a king who's greater than any earthly king. We're looking at a true king, a king of kings, in fact, a lord of lords, one who is over all. What I loved here is in the Aramaic, in chat, or in verse 10 rather, the very last sentence in that um, verse in the ESV reads, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. It's actually a good translation. However, it's literally rendered is the judgment sat and books were opened, or the books were opened. Why do I bring that up? 
Well, because it's almost personifying judgment here. Judgment sat, the judgment sat, giving it, definitizing the judgment here, equating it with the Lord who sits in judgment. The judgment sat and the books were open. What he's doing here is he's personifying this and saying that there's one who judges, one, one who judges, God alone who judges. In fact, it is so uniquely his domain that we can call him the judgment, just like we can call love is so uniquely his domain, we call him love. Truth, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's so, truth is so uniquely his domain, we call him the truth, life, love, and judgment. The judgment sat. The books were open. Love that should make us again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, the, the books were opened, the dead were judged, and they were judged by what was written in the book. We're seeing, Daniel is seeing something similar here. Who are these people who are judged? Who stands under the judgment? It's those who have been openly opposed to the Lord. It is no minor thing to oppose the living God. No minor thing to oppose the living God. It is not simply a matter of religious choice that is private to the individual. Beloved, if we believe the Bible is true, then we understand to oppose God is judgment. To stand against the truth of Scripture is judgment. And when we see the books open, whether it's in Revelation or here, who are those being judged? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, God told Adam, Eve, and the serpent of all the curses that would happen. And one of the curses that he leveled was the seed of the woman will be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. And he shall bruise his head and you shall bruise his heel. So what happens is a, is a theology is formed there that works its way out all the way through the Bible. You've heard me mention it several times. The seed of the woman versus seed of the serpent. We see it crop up again and again and again and again in different places. You can trace it. David was the seed of the woman who defeats Goliath, the seed of the serpent. So there's one example Jesus is the seed of the woman who comes and defeats Satan, who is the serpent. Why? When the books are open and the judge stand, it is those who have been in cahoots with or a part of the seed of the serpent who stand under God's judgment. So as he transitions from that, so we get the, we get the throne, we get the glory of the throne, we get the sobering reality of the throne, then we get a little glimpse at the, the judgment here. The next two verses. Then I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the little horn here kind of periodically or temporarily gets Daniel's attention again. Remember, he's talking about the great words, and Daniel just reports that he sees the end of it. Uh, this terrible beast is destroyed. That's what Daniel's getting at, that the little horn was a part of. Terrible beast destroyed, body given over to flame, and we understand that it has been completely obliterated by God. And look how scant material, look how little attention Daniel gives it. It is a statement. It is not some elaborated thing. Daniel just says, oh yeah, they were destroyed, bodies thrown to the fire, and that was it. Why? He wants us to grab to understand deeply that the power of man with all he can muster is nothing compared to the power of God. Oh yes, this kingdom that I painted for you 
back in verse 7, that was so terrible, that wasn't like anything, that was so just completely um, awful, is obliterated by God. The little horn done away with. Of course, he's going to come back around to this in the last, the last half of this book that God willing we'll look at soon. But for now, he's painting this picture of the power of man is no match for Yahweh. But he makes specific mention about giving them over to be burned with fire. Again, very similar to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. I mean, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, when God will speak of casting Satan and his dominion and all those who follow him into the lake of fire where the flames never die. Daniel is mirroring these truths for us several hundred years before Revelation is ever mentioned. Why do we keep jumping back and forth between Daniel and Revelation? Why are they so similar? Did John just simply copy Daniel's book and say, hey, this sounds cool, I'll copy it? Well, no, that's not it, in case there's any confusion. We have a similar story because we have a similar God telling two men the same story of what happens in the world, of what happens when the kingdom of man comes against the kingdom of God, of what happens when God's judgment is let loose and who stands and who falls. Because they're the same type of literature, they're telling the same story about the same God. And so we allow them to interpret each other, and they should. They're meant to. Because they're both saying, hey, life is painful. Life is hard. Yahweh is victorious. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to be in more pain than you can possibly imagine sometimes. Yahweh is victorious. And at the end of your pain, at the end of your trial, when you stand before God, you will be received as his own son or daughter because Yahweh is victorious. Very briefly, he mentions these other beasts. It's actually kind of mysterious. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The other beasts essentially had dominion. They had it removed, but God doesn't judge them immediately by taking their life. What is the purpose of telling us that? Is it immediately clear what that even means? Not immediately, no. Contextually, it's just a statement that's there. What is its design? What, what is it there for? Well, I think it's there to show that Yahweh has authority over kingdoms. He will raise them up, and he will put them down, because the fourth beast, he says, he destroyed by fire immediately. He could have easily done so with these. Why? Well, I don't know. It's, it's possible he could be allowing some of these earthly kingdoms time for repentance. Why does God withhold judgment? That's his prerogative, but he does so for other people to come into the fold. That could be it. But either way, what do we take from that? We take that God is in control, that God raises up and God puts down. And another thing we take from this is there was something fundamentally different between these three kingdoms and that fourth kingdom. We highlighted this last week. That fourth kingdom was something awful, something wretched. And God judged it, these he gives them a season of time, either for repentance or just simply to show his authority. How can we think of this? And what's a good picture? Well, a good picture to think of is God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Why? Because he's about to destroy that city. Overturn it. Jonah goes reluctantly. He preaches. 
And God withholds judgment for a season and a time by his own prerogative. Why? Because God raises up and God puts down. God is judge. What else do we gather from the, those, those two verses? <laughs> is that all kingdoms belong to God. All kingdoms belong to the Father and to the Son, no matter who it is, what they do, what we think they get away with. They all belong to the Father and the Son. Lastly, we come to the Son who is here pictured. Verses 13 and 14. What is God's remedy for the world? What is God's remedy for the world? Are all the uh, cataclysmic things, all the chaos that we see, what is God's remedy for the world? It's the Son. It's the Son. He says here, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The son of man, look at what he does. What did he say with those beasts? It was like a lion. It was like a bear. It was like a leopard. One like a son of man. He's using that comparative like again. Why? Because Daniel is saying he's like a man, but he's something more. When I saw this one come, he looked like a human. He kind of had the form of a human, but he's something totally different. He's identified differently because there's something about him that's different. How do we know that he's something about him that's different? He came with the clouds. How many people have you ever seen coming with the clouds besides Mary Poppins? That was a joke, sorry. I've never seen anybody come with the clouds. And so if I'm seeing somebody who looks like a human, but coming with the clouds, what I'm going to say is, well, it was kind of like a man, but he was in the clouds. He was in the place where we anticipate the Lord being, the divine judge being, the God of the earth, the Lord of the earth is there. And so he's got a human form, but he's divine. He's unique. He shares a characteristic with the ancient of days and his uniqueness. In fact, there's not anything else that's really like him. It's like a son of man, Daniel said. Incidentally, if you do a study of the Gospels, what is Jesus' most common way of referring to himself in the New Testament? The son of man. Picking up on this reference from Daniel. What else do we know about this son of man? Look at what Daniel tells us. He was presented before the Ancient of Days. So now I want, you to, I want you to keep the distinction clear in your mind. What are the thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands doing? They're bowing in worship. They're serving. What is this Son of Man, this one unique creature, what is he doing? He's standing before the Ancient of Days. What does that tell you? Well, in some way, this, this being is worthy before the Lord. Beloved, let that sink in. He is worthy before the Lord. Have you ever experienced anything in life that just made you feel so unworthy? I do often. And we're confronted with one who doesn't ever experience that. He is worthy before the Lord. Just give me a second to pontificate here, just one moment. You know what's beautiful about this picture? What are we, what are we looking at? We're looking at this one who's before the Lord. What are we seeing? The one like a son of man, he comes with the clouds, who stands before the throne of the Ancient of Days. Oh man, we're looking at man as he should be. We're looking at one like a man 
who's in perfect relationship with the Lord, who's in unity with the Lord, who has a different relationship with the Lord than the other ministering spirits that are around there. Oh, man, we're seeing, man, as he should have been, we're seeing the failure of Adam be rectified in Jesus here. We are seeing what Adam failed to do by giving in to the serpent in the garden that brought us low and put us unworthy. We're seeing this one who comes to stand before the throne who says, I will be worthy. I will be worthy. Oh, beloved, if that doesn't give you chills, you're a robot. I mean, not really. If you, if you didn't get chills, it's okay, but it gives me chills. What Adam failed to be, Jesus perfectly fulfilled. Yes, this is pointing us directly to Jesus, saying all the failures are rectified in this one like a son of man who came with the clouds. How does Daniel end it? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Dominion and glory this one has. What, what is he saying? He says, the whole world is given to him. You can write down the reference. You can look it up later in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After the 144,000 are mentioned, just directly after that, then it says, then a great multitude that no man could number were before the throne. And you remember how John describes it? Every nation, tribe, and tongue. You see the similarities here? Peoples, nations, languages. What are both of those phrases getting at? A global impact that transcends race and gender and age and all that stuff. That transcends all that. That is getting us to see that he rules the world. He has an eternal dominion. He has an eternal kingdom. And it's indestructible. And it's global. Daniel is telling his ancient Israelites, hey guys, God's plan is a little bit bigger than you think it is. It's a bit more expansive than you think it is. And praise God it is. And praise God for Jesus. Because here we sit for those two reasons. Beloved, the sovereign rule of God is good news in hard times. Hard times, they abound with and for us. We deal with death. We deal with disease. We deal with war. We deal with psychological pains. We deal with tyranny. And the list goes on, and it will continue. We will continue to deal with those things. Those things will happen. And as I've said before, it's so easy to succumb to despair when we focus on the problem instead of what the answer and the solution is. It's easy to despair if we constantly think we're fighting a losing battle. What does Satan want you to do? He wants you to think you're fighting a losing battle. Why? Well, A, partly because he's been defeated at the cross. He knows, he knows his end. But he wants to undermine the church of God to bring uh, uh, division, to help or make us want to help us doubt truth, to despair. And it's for this very reason that chapters like Daniel 7 exist, to say, don't despair. Remember the truth. They remind us that through the trials we face that there is a sovereign ruler who's executing a plan to establish his kingdom. And God is keenly aware of the brokenness in our world, and that is exactly why he sent his son. Jesus has come. 
to rescue and redeem. In fact, let's say this. Jesus rescues and redeems his people. Jesus has come to give peace and hope. Jesus is the answer to all the pain we face, and he will faithfully guide us home. Don't ever let that become trite to you. Yeah, I know Jesus is the answer, but I still feel pain. Well, of course you do. You're in this world. But the pain is not the final answer. Hope in Christ is. Beloved, I don't know what struggles you may be dealing with today and what struggles lie ahead for all of us, but I know that Daniel 7 is true, and it will be true, and it will remain true, and we have hope. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning, its power, its beauty, its depth, so much more we could even plumb. And yet, God, we do live in a world of hardship and pain and despair, and well, where trials abound. And Father, help us to remember that we do have a refuge, a strong tower, a place where we can come that is balm for the soul of those who are hurting and lost broken, in pain. Thank you for your mercy. Be with us, I pray, in Christ. Amen.